Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Tuesday, January 31st, 2012. This is episode 97, and this is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me from his secret abode in the projection booth of the Dynasty Theater is Mr. Kevin Ma. Oh, hello, yes. Stop me from watching Seconds in 3D. Oh, hey, Paul. Hello, what? everybody. What? 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 <laughs> what? what? Oh, uh, is no, is well, that like a, a, a George Lucas re-release? or? <laughs> no, this, you know, because I live in the dynasty, so, you know, <laughs> I, can, I can put on whatever movies I want. Yeah. But it's, it's, I, think, I think you'd be safer with yeah. 33D Invader. But, uh, you're right, that, that's more of uh, our friend uh, Sleazy K, uh, Mr. Kenneth Brarson from over there in Europe. That's more his territory. Um, how are you doing? How's things? Uh, it's been a I'm, holiday week, right? I mean, uh, we're still, we're kind of, I guess, technically on the tail end of Chinese New Year. I mean, the official holidays in terms of days off are over, but the celebratory period still goes on for about another week when you're supposed to still give out money and red packets to the unmarried masses, visiting yes, family I, and relatives and things, right? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, uh, I still got a red pocket, uh, I mean, yesterday at work, um... I, I am suffering from post-holiday trauma because, uh, you know, we won't have another public holiday here in Hong Kong for until, I think, April. Bu- Bu- Easter. Is it Buddha's birthday or Dragon? No, Buddha's birthday is next, I think. Really? I think, I think yeah. no, I think that's May. We get we get uh, a very long Easter holiday in Do April we? here in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah I know there, there there's a couple that are, like, clumped right in there. Um, yeah, like four or five uh, days. Qingming Festival. Isn't that also yeah. around there? Yeah. Around that time, yeah. But uh, <clears throat> but that also means we won't have a public holiday until for two months straight. Yeah. Unless you uh, count the Hong Kong International Film Festival as a public holiday, which some people get to home. do, but unfortunately I do not. Yes, but yeah. um, it's been it, it, this week is so busy because there's so mo- so many movies coming out that I'm gonna have a lot of things to write, and of course the end of the month, so that's more stuff piled on at work. Uh, it's so been so busy that this is like my time off this is like mm. my holiday paul yeah coming here and talk to talk to you people and and being on the internet and all that well as yeah. usual it is a pleasure to have you and to talk with you sir but what are we going to be talking about today ah this week for east screen we'll be talking about viral factor uh from director dante lamb uh and for west screen we'll be talking about the descendants and uh puss in boots all right that sounds excellent All of that and a little bit more coming up right after a little bit of news. Before we get started, I just wanted to throw a quick shout out to the chat room. We've got uh, one of our regular guests in there, Mr. Matthew Seidel. Hope you're doing well and having a nice uh, sort of tail end of the Chinese New Year there, wherever you're at, sir. Um, So what news do you bring for us this week, Kevin? 
Uh, this week, two very interesting stories. Um, today is the last day uh, of operation for uh, Hong Kong's uh, UA Times Square Cinema. Um, it's actually one of the highest grossing cinemas in the city uh, due to its uh, very nice location in Causeway, uh, middle of Causeway Bay. And because, well, the tickets are very expensive. Um, the thing with the cinema closing is that they say that it's been... Um, it's being moved upstairs in the mall to make way for an LV store. Hmm. So that has um, actually brought a lot of controversy. And uh, this story from a good friend of the podcast, Mr. Tim Youngs, um, from the SCMP, uh, the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, um, people in the Hong Kong Film Council uh, is trying to is suggesting that the government should help um, intervene in helping um, building cinemas in certain neighborhoods. Um, what what they, because uh, in Hong Kong there's a very uneven distribution of cinemas. Um, for example, your neighborhood, Paul, doesn't have a cinema, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and and it's sad too because when I first moved here in 2000, um, there used to be a couple of like small private cinemas. There was one in uh, in Tai Po. There was one in Fan Lang. Um, and they've long since vanished. Uh, the only real private cinemas um, that are around are just a, sort of a handful. Even some of the bigger name ones, um, like uh, the Queen's Theatre. We went to one of the final screenings of the Queen's Theatre um, a couple years ago, and uh, it's sad to see some of these go. But Times Square is uh, is is part of UA, right? They're, they're yes, part of yes. the chain. Yes. And I'll be honest, I never liked that theatre. I hated um, that theater. I, I, honestly. The, the, I remember that the houses were kind of like really narrow and they were kind of, it wasn't really stadium seating. It was sort of like slope seating, um, mm-hmm. but the seats were really, really packed in tight. Um, mm-hmm. And I just remembered I would really not like watching movies there on, and I would avoid it at all possible if unless there was something that was only playing there. Um, which did happen on, on occasion, but I'd say I've only seen uh, less than a handful of films there. Just, you know, I'm a big guy, and I don't like being uh, kind of sardine canned into seats. So uh, it was it was not one of my main choices for holiday uh, for film venues. And in part too, because it's the UA is as a chain wasn't one of the nicest chains. Um, it was sort of one of the more modern ones to spring up. Uh, mm-hmm. early on but with houses that you have with things like stadium seating now um, such as amc there are a lot better options my real question though with regard to the ua chain was whatever happened to uh the shatian cinema that's still being built right i mean um that used to be sort of a a really um centralized cinema for the new territories at one point and it was an above ground and below ground cinema they used to have I want to say three houses above ground, and they had three more sort of down in this basement area. And then they ripped out the whole ground floor, and all that remained for the past few years were these kind of three tiny houses um, downstairs. And I've seen them the few times I've been through to Shatin, uh building sort of a, a big stadium-sized theater, but it seems to have taken them forever to get that thing under construction. I think they stopped construction on that. I think they were supposed to. They were t- there were talks about an IMAX theater out there. Um, but actually, the Sha Tin location is really central because 
in the east, northeastern, or the, the eastern end of new territories, that is the only cinema yeah. that's serving, I think, multiple neighborhoods, including uh, uh, um, Shui. We talk about Funland, Taipo. That's the entire northern uh, eastern ter- uh, eastern nor- uh, new territories, yeah. and of course, Shatian, Taiwei, and them, that's six neighborhoods. When they, when they used to have the the uh, ground level theaters, which were they are still kind of the old style slope seating, but they were bigger houses. Um, I would I would go. That would be my prime choice to go to watch movies because it really would only take me about half an hour to get there mm-hmm. um but with this those smaller theaters they're just too small to really be enjoyable it's it's preferable just to go two more stations down the line and go to the big amc because at least they have the, the sort of the modern stadium seating yes yeah, so um, here here is the the problem we have at hand is that hong kong is a really uneven distribution uh, of cinemas people have to travel a really long time i mean yes it is two extra stations for you paul but i mean think about the cost of having to go all the way out to the central city downtown um i'm lucky because i live right in between two theaters but actually the two theaters in my neighborhood serve the entire eastern end of the uh, hong kong island and uh right now you have the free cinemas in causeway bay uh at least the only free everything yeah there's only three left there was four before Times square Times square closed um, there's only three serving the entire middle part of the, of the of the island, which is one of the most densely densely populated area or densely visited or dense cis neighborhoods in Hong Kong. I mean, that's like the that's the heart of the Hong Kong island. Um, so that that is the problem we have at hand, and because many malls, they're more um, now they're more more willing to or they're they're, they're preferring um, uh, bigger retail chains that will they're willing to pay higher rent to rent out the space. Um, including LV, which is uh, Louis Vuitton is taking, which is taking the UA, the UA Times Square space. Uh, so now there's talks that perhaps the government should intervene because the landlords are so um, are so greedy for bigger rent. Uh, retail stores bring bigger rent. And well, and the other point too is I think that um, in the past few years you've seen declines in you know attendance for yes. a lot yes. of films in general. While rents are going up, so even the prospect of, you know, putting a cinema in a mall space anymore, the the cinema itself it might be losing money in the long run because people just, you know, they'll go out for the big blockbusters, but it's not the it's not really the social thing it once was. It's and- very much a vicious cycle because. When you build a mall, you always have a theater to anchor the mall I and mean, to bring yeah. to bring foot traffic. But now um, the problem is that um, cinema attendance is so. Once the mall takes off, if your mall is already in a prime location, like say Times Square, um, then you already have the foot traffic there, and the landlords now prefer to have bigger stores that would attract more more tourists or more um, shoppers. Yeah, and it's interesting too if you think about the discussion we've had over the past couple of weeks. You know the um, sort of the protest with what was it the DNG uh, incident, and then the, the professor comments last week. Um, one of the things that sort of stirs in my mind when thinking about this is: is this really a res- response to the way that malls are catering more for you know mainland shoppers? In part, you know, when the mainlanders are coming to Hong Kong, um, you know, unlike you who go, goes to China to watch movies, I think most of them are coming to shop, not to really watch movies. So right. again, it makes that mall space, you know, that 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 old model of the theater being the anchor, especially for the mall management, less 
practical, maybe l- less of a selling point. I think the fact that these people are blaming on mainland tourists, I think it's more they're just looking for a scapegoat. And I think yes, it is a result of the tension. I think the they putting the, the anger in the wrong focus here. I think the focus is back on should be back on the landlords who are willing to, you know, who who are you know putting up these these preposterous uh, rent. Uh, for I'm talking about UA Times Square. UA Times Square is one of the most expensive cinemas in Hong Kong. I mean, right now they have one of the highest ticket prices in the city, and they still don't have don't don't generate the revenue that a Louis Vuitton shop would bring in. Um, it, it's I think I think mean, we should we should be looking at the problem of greedy landlords here, not mainland tourists, because a mainland tourist can climb three floors to go to a Louis Vuitton shop if they really want to. Yeah. You know, let's face it, putting a Louis Vuitton shop at where the outdoors or having a, a ground level shop, it's really not that much different than putting it on third floor because it's one of those shops is no one's no, no mainland tourist is going to go to Times Square and then go, oh, LV's three floors up. I don't think I'll go. You know, instead, <laughs> you have people who, who, who realize that, you know, the cinema is up on the 13th floor and that, you know, who's going to want to go up all the way up there? Well, if they've if they've if they do what they did with Langham and they make sort of a a speedy lift you know that goes directly to the floor it would be acceptable you know but we um, all know that the the, the mall isn't going to be that 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 um what's the word accommodating yeah to the cinema cuz it is an old mall they'd have to really redesign the mall yeah. to do that so now the question is do you think the government should intervene should they start should they should they do some of these zoning regulations to to make to step in and build cinemas or to help to to work out uh think deals with landlords to try and get more cinemas do you well, think it's the government's job i, I to don't do it? i don't think it's the government's job to subsidize cinema space no um, i don't think so either especially i mean as much as i love movies and i love going to the movies um i i don't think that's an efficient use of tax dollars Mm-hmm. If people really miss movies, if people really want to see movies, they'll go out and watch them. I think that money would be better spent trying to maybe educate the public about, you know, you shouldn't go online and watch these things on streaming sites from China that may or may not be legal. Well, we right? all know that's a that's a that's a that's a hopeless hopeless endeavor there. But I, actually, you know what? If if the government wants to put in money, if the Hong Kong Film Fund wants to put in money to build like an um like a film center, you know, something like the film archive, but you know, better seating, better location, um, a smaller yeah, that venue. that I could get behind. That I I, get I, behind, I would right? spend if the film archive was more central, like in the in the Kowloon area, I would spend days and upon days every week there. Exactly. I would love I mean I, I would love nothing more than just to go every weekend and hang out at the film archive. It's just so freaking far away. Yes. So now the problem is, I don't think, yes, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think the government should be putting in money to subsidize already such a commercial industry. I mean, we, we talk about a city where its cinemas raise prices during holidays just to make more money, or they would raise prices for longer movies just to make money. It's such a commercial industry. I don't yeah, think you were, you were, cinemas need government help. What was it you were talking about uh, just uh, a couple weeks ago? Your uh, stylist. Right, raise the price. Yes, um, for New Year's for for China. You know, I my wife was telling me I need to get my hair cut. I need to get my hair cut, and the sal- my salon fifty fifty bucks surcharge. You know, because the the tradition in, in before Chinese New Year's, you're supposed to get all your essentials cut, and then you're not supposed to do any cutting 
over the next 15 days once Chinese New Year starts. So that means oh, you cut need, my bag of rice there today. You, okay? Well, you need to have your t- your toenails, you, you know, your manicures, your pedicures, cut your fingernails, uh, shave, you know, cut your hair, all of that before everything starts. And then if you haven't done it, you shouldn't do it for like 15 days. It's it's a it's you know a traditional idea of luck or, or, or something to do with that. But Wait, I can't shave during New Year's. I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, you can't cut your hair. I know that for okay, sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, so my wife asked me, you know, she's like, you, are you going to go get your hair cut? It's like for $50 more. No, I'll wait two weeks. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, seriously, is the government going to subsidize the hair salon industry because they're all moved up up a second floors now. So they should all be a ground floor because, you know, therefore whatever the hell it is that does to the hair salon industry. No, it's. I mean, the industry itself is already so hungry for extra money that that they would do anything to raise revenue. And I don't, and I for one don't sympathize. I think they should when, turn the dynasty into the film. <laughs> yes, yes, I would get behind the government taking over the dynasty. But then that means you know, we can't watch Wanjing movies they, anymore. They, but they've got all that space on that first level where they keep all those, you know, movie poster stands. Mm-hmm. They could just easily, you know, put like libraries of stuff in there computer terminals, you know, for people to watch stuff on, on discs and everything. I wouldn't want to touch the computers there. Honestly. <laughs> well, of course it would need to be renovated, but <laughs> yes. But uh, you know, the, the, the question, the question is then, uh, I mean, what can we do about the cinema industry? I mean, it, yes, revenue is down, but the thing is the, the, even the cine- the multiplex are not running themselves properly. They're high, they're you know. I think we talked about this many times. We still get sh- uh, crappy projection. I almost said a bad word there. You still get crappy projection. We still have uh, a problem with sound. I couldn't even watch Drag- Girl with Dragon Tattoo at the UA UA City Plaza here with proper sound yeah. on digital projection. I mean, if the cinemas aren't running themselves properly, how can we expect people to go watch to to pay the exorbitant prices yeah, for for movies? It it's really. You know, it, it's almost like a catch-22 because you've got these problems. It pushes people away from cinemas even more, and it makes it that much harder to convince the government to take some kind of action, you know, in, in support of them. Yes. Um, and I don't, I don't think I really have any specific answers. I would love to see more cinemas open up in the new territories. I mean, the only one that I think is even remotely near, and it still takes an hour to get there, by bus is the one out in Yunlong. I don't think yeah. that one's closed down. That's part of the Broadway chain. Yunlong still has one. Tin Shui has one. Yeah. Uh, Tumen has a UA. I mean, the western, the west new territory is well covered, actually, because. But I'm not sure why the east, east new territories isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, like I, I think I think I would support if the government wants to build, like an art film set or a film a, a film theater that supports lesser known films. Um, indie films, art films, um, uh, promoting films as an art, uh, I would get behind that. But if it's to subsidize the commercial cinema industry, I, I am totally against it, I think. Yeah. I don't know. If it, if it subsidized Wang Jing movies, well, I think I, no. I think I would think it's a dynasty subsidized Wang Jing movies. I think they're subsidizing something. I don't know if they're subsidizing Hong Kong film. <laughs> I want you to write a thank you cards. I mean, just to just for showing up as move every one of his movies. That's not gonna happen. All right. Um, we got some other news about something yes. about ratings. Yes. Um, a, a a theater chain in China, uh, Bona, one of the biggest biggest ones, uh, owned by 
Bona Films. Um, they are going to be imposing their own internal rating systems. Um, this is um, what they call a guidance system. Uh, essentially, they were going to they're, they're going to put a rating on each film that plays within the chain. Um, that is based on the Hong Kong Hong Kong system, so category one, category two, and category three. Um, essentially, it's like a, a parental guidance for people to make sure they know what they're watching, and 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 what they know that what, uh, so they know that whether it's, it's suitable for the kids or not. Um, I think this is a really interesting step because um, I'm not sure if they did this uh, with the approval of um, the State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television, the the uh, China's Film Authority. Um, Two, uh, they're not going to they're not going to uh, impose any actual um, what's the word restrictions. As in, if a movie is category three, they're not going to stop kids from going in. It's it's only a guidance system. Um, but is this the first step to a rating system in China? Um, and two, is SARF going to step in because this this rating system kind of oversteps their bounds? Well, my because- question is, why would they need it? I mean, I would assume that the censorship is already so strong. I mean, you don't. You're not going to get movies like Lust Caution coming coming in there. No, that's the problem. I think Lust Caution still played. Uh, cutting sixteen minutes is still played in China. Flowers of War. Um, when I was in Shenzhen watching uh, Flowers of War, some woman brought in her five year old. The problem is that the, when there's no ratings, then Sarf deem that all films are all are suitable for all audiences. Now we know that's not true. I mean, a film like Flowers of War, which is actually R rated R in 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 America. Without an alternate cut, it's the same cut as the one pl- that played in China. I mean, that cannot possibly be suitable for our audience. But they, I mean, as I understand it, they don't allow things like nudity, right? In no, but I mean, violence is, of course, is still much more allowed than 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 uh, yeah. than sex. Well, I um, guess this gets into the whole, you know, is uh, is media violence? Does that have a direct impact on children? Argument. Um, the problem is there are some films that really still aren't suitable for children. I mean, like I said, Flowers of War is one example. Even, um, I think most martial arts films, uh, I think, in a way, Flower, uh, Flying Gates of Drag- uh, Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, even in a way, is I think, um, is not suitable for younger children. It's still too violent, mm-hmm. as it is. Um, and, and the problem is that, you know, people don't know, when, especially in China, when they go and watch a film, many of the, these people don't do research and they see a film that's really attractive. And because of SARF, then they think it's, it's automatically um, 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 suitable for everyone. I mean, then I don't know. I'm, in, I'm, then they bring their five-year-old kids into a movie about Nanjing Massacre. Yeah, but I mean, if, if we're looking at this from sort of the American standard for ratings, it, you know, something like uh, Flying Swords of uh, Dragon Gate might you know, uh, raise some eyebrows, but 13, I think there, I don't think I saw anything in that film that I haven't seen in, for example, a, uh, Japanese cartoon, you know, that kids in Japan would watch. So I think there might be different cultural perspectives on violence and maybe how that's dealt with by parents. And, and maybe that's perceived differently in, in China, in Japan, in I don't know Korea. Um, no, I, I think I think that it is actually Flowers of War, and there was a, a recent horror film. There's been a, a, a whole string of horror films that's been. I mean, for example, would you let your kids go watch Mysterious Island? That's a question, right? And mm. that got through China no problem. So, I I wouldn't yeah. let my kids watch Mysterious Island because it's just a bad. Film. Well, okay, that too, but I, mean, I would not let my kids watch Mysterious Island. I mean, at least until they reach. You know, I'd be teenage. like. Go watch The Phantom Menace. 
<laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah, that, okay, that that's just that's just you know based on humanity, you know, humanitarian humanitarian reasons. But it is true that um, uh, that the lack of rating system in China is true. It's true that it's hurting the films in a way, um, and bec- and a lot actually a lot of nez- it's one of the now the trending topics in on uh, on China's microblog. Hmm. There's been at least three hundred fifty two. 352,000 posts um, um, of people uh, t- uh, essentially expressing their views, many of them in support of it because they believe that once a rating system is in, that pe- that films might not be cut anymore. Or that you would actually get... They do believe... Many people do believe that or, or do know that... It's an interesting cut, dynamic. The films. You know, it's a, we want yes. more censorship because it'll lead to less censorship. <laughs> yeah, they, a rating system, ironically, would let, lead to less censorship because they believe... That a rating system means that people films would result in less cuts, hmm. um, and in a way that makes sense. But I think um, so. A film like You're the Apple of My Eye, uh, it was cut by three minutes. All the, the a lot of the the more uh, lowbrow sex stuff was cut out, and actually that caused a lot of um, a lot of complaints by netizens um, who who wanted to see this this film that you know makes such a splash in in Taiwan and Hong Kong, and they and they saw essentially what they call a unique version of it. Hmm. Um, and and I think that's one of the one thing that sparked this discussion is that peop, I think I think that younger people are tired of watching um, essentially uh, tamed films when when they they know that it's clearly been tamed it it, it goes against the the director's um, intentions. Um, now, does that mean I'm I'm in 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 you know am I in support of you know more torture porn or more horror movies or more you know violent movies in cinemas? I don't think so. Um, but I do believe that if if Having a rating system helps preserve the integrity of a film as it was meant to be seen. Then I would say, why not? You know. But of course, the thing about China is that you you can you can get away with one thing, but you can't. There's no way that you can get away with ideological censorship in China. That's uh, something that a rating system cannot fix. Yeah. Um. So first, we have to wait and see this if this Bona rating system is really approved by the uh, film authority in China because like I said earlier this kind of oversteps their their authority because when 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 your government's saying no this movie's okay to, to be seen by everyone then your cinema comes out and say actually no not really not really um that could cause a problem I mm. think between the cinema and the government um and and will will this rating system encourage and of course the the people's um, um, support for one will it change Sarf's mind and how would it change the China film industry? I think there's a very this could potentially be a very big step in the future of Chinese cinema. Hmm. Alright, so the first up is for East Screen this week is actually the first film, kinda sorta, unless you count the Great Magician, maybe the second film of the Chinese New Year film releases. Um, but we're just now getting to it because I didn't have a chance to see it, and I was hoping to have a chance to see it before we got to cover it on the show. Unfortunately, uh, that opportunity has passed me by. And so, Mr. Ma, the ball is in your court. Tell us about Woo-hoo. The Viral Factor. Okay, The Viral Factor is the latest film from director Dante Lam, who um, last, uh, I think last made uh, Stool Pigeon. Uh, and before that, uh, of course, Fire of Conscience and Beastalker. He's... He's kind of had a comeback in recent years because of of those films. Um, the this film is a very big budget kind of international made on an international scale, filmed in Jordan uh, type 
no, not Taiwan. Sorry, uh, Beijing and uh, and Malaysia. Actually, mostly in Malaysia. Uh, the film stars um, Jay Chow as uh, John. He is uh, an uh, agent in a fictional um, anti-terrorist international anti-terrorist force uh, who discovers um, a, a, who is ordered to go to Jordan to stop the spread of a, of a very dangerous virus or to stop it from getting to the hands of the wrong people. And the process is betrayed by uh, one of his team members, uh, Sean, played by Andy Ong. Um, in the process of the mission, he is shot in the head and the bullet in his head uh, is, a, is going to kill him in about two weeks. Yes, uh, that's actually not ruining the ending because that's like the setup of his character. Um, so after he returns home to Beijing, um, his mother tells him that he he actually has um has an older brother, um, in 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 Malaysia, uh, who is living with his uh with his father. Um, and so so within before he dies in two weeks, he decides to go to Malaysia to to find um. To find his brother and and try and sort things out and trying to get him to go see his mother, um, so he goes to Malaysia, uh, and that's where he um, runs into Mang Yun, who is played by Nick Say. Um, Nick Say is his older brother, and he's led a very very different life from John. He uh, living with his father, he's become uh, pretty much a full time criminal, and um, he has he's he is actually um, kind of an assassin or a fixer for uh, a corrupted cop. Um, and he essentially become a criminal, and um, in the process of his latest job, he runs into John and the two. Um, uh, I'm not even sure what to say, but yeah, in in the in the, in, the, in the process, um, John realizes he's actually also working for Sean, part of Sean's operation to essentially um, uh, develop this virus and 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 sell it for a very high price um, to to a terrorist. Uh, so of course that thus begins a struggle between the two brothers, uh, whether they'll they'll get along again. And of course he has to uh, um, John has to get revenge and and stop the virus from spreading and take down Sean at the same time. Um, so that that's where the the plot essentially kicks off. Um, first of all, I mean the best thing about the the viral factor is the action. Um, Dante Lam essentially uses almost no CGI for the action sequences, except for a couple of um, uh, slow motion shots, uh, particularly one um, involving you know a bullet, the, the slow motion bullet flying across the air thing, shooting across the air. Except for those little bits of CGI, the all the actions real, the explosions are real, the helicopter chase is real, um, the car crashes are real. So it's really great, refreshing to see uh, in an age where. Um, Chinese action films are relying so much on CGI. It's, it's quite refreshing to see uh, action film that uses no CGI, was almost no CGI in the action scenes. Uh, however, the problem with the film is there are a ton of logic problems. Um, I'm not even going to start on the script, but I'll just name one or two examples. For example, I, I had a real trouble describing the plot because essentially everything happens by coincidence. Uh, John, he goes to Malaysia to find his brother, but somehow, in the middle of Kuala Lumpur, happens to run into Sean and decides that he must get revenge. Um, and by coincidence, uh, uh, runs into uh, Mang Yun, and that's how they reunite. By coincidence, runs into his father, and that's how they reunite. Everything is by coincidence. Um, one specific example is when uh, John, uh, because he's suffering from headaches from the bullet in his head, so he's on a plane, and, and um, he's sitting next to a virologist who is actually working with the virus, that's another coincidence there. But he, he's, he has a headache 
um, sitting on a plane because of the of the altitude. So the viral, the doctor literally walks into the cockpit and tells the pilot to lower the plane's altitude to 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 solve the headache. I, I and the, the, the what what airline is that? I need to ride on that airline. <laughs> yes, it's a actually it was a product placement for Air Asia, the Malaysian budget airline. Hmm. So yes, you see it's a product placement. So you see the Air Asia plane, and you see the Air Asia plane going down in altitude. And after seeing that scene, I never want to sit in Air Asia. Yeah, because it must be like the world's most dangerous airplane, where you, anyone can just walk into the cockpit and say, yeah. "Hey, you must lower the altitude." They, yes. they have no need for air marshals. Yes, I mean Malaysia is 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 partly a Muslim country, isn't it? It's <laughs> mostly a Muslim country, right? Yeah. And I, I can't imagine Mus- uh, Malaysia has having no security problem whatsoever um, with terrorists or with with you know hijackers or just keeping the cockpit door closed. I mean, no one has actually been able to walk into a cockpit since. Well, when? you know, maybe in how many years? They're, they're a new airline, right? Maybe they've been watching Pan Am. <laughs> and you know they're basing their their operational model on the way things used to be. <laughs> I guess so, but after watching that, I never want to sit in in a, in Air Asia plane. And after you know the tons of corrupted cops in Malaysia, I don't want to. I don't want to ever go to Malaysia because apparently Kuala Lumpur is like the most the most dangerous city in the world because there's so many corrupted cops and there's no justice there. Actually, that's one of the smartest part of the script. Uh, that's actually the only smart part of the script is that. In setting the story in Malaysia, the filmmakers can get away with a lot of things uh, with China because when your corrupted cops are in Malaysia, your criminal good guy is actually in from Malaysia, um, and they all get away in Malaysia. So it's okay because it's Malaysia; it's not China. Mm. You can have a you have a dangerous virus uh, going around Malaysia because Malaysia is not China. So it's actually uh, quite smart. However, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of reviews there saying you know you can just you know put the you can just um, um, forget the drama because you know the film is all about action anyway. But we know that Dante Lam is not that kind of director, right? Um, he is actually very much a, a director who who is he's essentially the new ma- master of overwrought melodrama, and and the f- the film shoves that stuff stuff shoves the melodrama in your face so hard that it's really hard to ignore it. You know, you already have a crying monologue. Um, of Elaine Jin doing her, her big monologue in 20 minutes into the film and, and she's losing it and the whole film is about this broken family and how to reunite. Um, it's, it's, the film is so devoid of humor that it's, and it takes itself so seriously that it's really hard to take the movie seriously in turn. Hmm. Um, so I, I would say that, no, it's, it's actually a problem with the film is that you can't avoid the drama. You can't, it's so in your face that, that it really... It makes the logic problems even harder to take. So how how does this? I mean, in terms of the drama, in terms of performances, stack up with say Beast Stalker or uh, Stool Pigeon? The film here, it, this film is a lot more um, concentrated on the action, a lot more focused on the action. So it is a little light on plot compared to uh, Beast Stalker or Stool Pigeon. Uh, first of all, there's no no drama involving sexual transmitted disease, so that's a good thing mm. already. Does anybody <laughs> become zombies? No, oh, no, but 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 Nick Nick say cries. Nick say does the snot <laughs> cry again. He has to, and apparently the last in in his um uh, Dante Lam movies, Nick Nick say has to overact and cry, and he does that again here. Um, we're used to it. Um, and the the thing is, the film has so many coincidences that you would think that someone would actually kind of make make a joke, make a crack sometimes. Like, oh, hey, there you are again. I just I can't get away from you, right? Does, no, but there's the film has no humor whatsoever. Uh, does the film? Suffer because of a lack of Nick Chung. Uh, in a way, I mean, 
let's face it, Jay Chow, he's not as good an actor as Nick Chern is. Well, let's I think, what was the last thing I saw him in? Treasure, Treasure, Treasure Hunter, Hunter? Or, no, Green Hornet. Green Hornet, yeah. Green Hornet, I yeah. think. Um, and Jay Chow is not a very, uh, he doesn't emote much, and his character here doesn't exactly require to him, him to emote, but um, he's not a, again, he's not a very good actor. I mean, he tries very hard in the action scene, even though actually Nick Say does, uh, has more challenges here. He, he does, literally, he does a four, four story jump in between, in a gap between two, two metal, metal, metal roofs. And, and so he has a lot more tougher stunts here. Um, Jay Chow is okay. Um, and the other, the third actor we should talk about here is Andy On. Um, Andy On is acting almost entirely in English here. Uh, his character speaks almost, he only does, he only says one line in Mandarin. Um, but the problem is he can't even act well in his native language. Mm. I mean, he has like a five minute exposition monologue in English and the, the, the enunciation is, is bad. The emoting is bad. And, I, you know, I know that Andy On is more an action, action actor than a, you know, a actor actor, but he's acting his native language. He has no excuse. Well, let's talk about the language for a minute, because as you look at the trailer, the trailer makes this film seem like it's almost all English. Um, mm. Is that the case or is there a, well, what do you think is the ratio of languages being used? Uh, English is only mainly just Andy On. Um, so maybe 10 to 20% of the film. Um, actually, the film is very strange because, um, and I think this could be a, one of those things that Dante Lam, again sending in Malaysia is again actually quite a smart decision because you don't you not only get away with these things uh, with the with the corrupted cops, but Dante Lam also can put in Cantonese speaking characters. So you have Luke Hai Chi playing um, the dad, um, Nick Say playing uh, speaking Cantonese throughout, and yeah, so so you have. Those characters speaking Cantonese and Jay Chow speaks, of course, completely Mandarin. So the, and and the the doctor, the, play, the actress who plays the doctor is from China. So the film is, I think, about 40, 45 in Mandarin, forty five in Cantonese, and ten percent, ten fifteen percent. I'm not sure if that adds up, but about ten percent in English. So there's a good mix of the three languages here. And again, that's actually one of the reasons that could be one of the more smarter things about setting the film in Malaysia because then the language mix actually makes sense. Mm. Um. And um, there's a and and I'm just gonna, I think the most brilliant thing about the film, uh, talk about Dante Lam directing, is actually the final shot of the film. And and talk about the final shot because it doesn't really tell you what happens in the plot. But since it's about this broken family, uh, they were in Hong Kong, and um, Jay Chow and his mother Elaine Jin went to Beijing, while Nick Say and the father Yu Kai Chi went to Malaysia. So the final shot of the film is kind of a flashback to when the family was together, and the and the camera. So they're eating dinner together, and the camera zooms back, and you see that they're in a Hong Kong public estate, and the Lion Rock is right behind it. Mm. I think that's a very, in, very intriguing shot, and I think that's in a way Dante Lam saying, saying, "Look at me. I have been in better times. Mm. It's been I had better times when I was working in Hong Kong. I was truly happy. And now I'm making this <laughs> China, China action film. You know, I have this broken my broken um, priorities. I have to make movies in China. I have to make movies for China outside of Hong Kong. And I'm no longer happy. My I'm broken as a man. Really? I think is that his message here? I wonder because it's actually very intriguing. Because why would you? You know, he he can always come this? back and work for RTHK. I think they still make you know below the go, go, below the Lion Rock. You know those. Uh, 
after school special kind of things once in a while, don't they? Yeah, and he did do a, 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 a what was it the the ICAC TV movie I think last month yeah. or last year. Yeah, so he still does Hong Kong thing, but of course, sadly, sadly his 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 movies are all you know require China approval now, and and they do have to appeal to a China audience. But you know that one statement actually says more says more than the, the rest of the film does. Hmm. You know, and I wonder I if that'll be great. cut in the China print. I wonder, but I don't think that, I mean, ideologically, it doesn't, say, it doesn't say anything bad, but knowing Dante Lam or knowing that it's a Hong Kong director and that it's supposed to be supposedly a Hong Kong film is quite an interesting message. But um, anyway, conclusion wise, um, the action is again quite good. Uh, it's a very loud movie. Uh, the action does take up most of the film. I think there's 80 minutes of 120 minutes is, is action. Um, it's so overwhelming. It's so. So, um, how do I say, professional? I wouldn't say it's as good as a Hollywood film. Um, I know that a couple of people in our movie group can't won't excuse it because it's essentially the Hong Kong equivalent of a bad Hollywood action film, and that's their thing. And I'm not sure if I agree, but uh, because ten, ten, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the production value is still a bit lacking, um, even though the film cost 25 million to make, uh, to make, which is actually quite a big budget, um, but it's still very well put together for a Hong Kong action film. It's very professional. Um, it's so overwhelming that the best way to go see it is in a cinema. But the film itself is so bad um, that I think I can only say TV it. It's not a good movie, even though there's good things to say about it. Um, I don't think it'll be my worst 10, but if this positive buzz from the West, a certain, a certain, a certain film site just called it the best Asian action film of 2012, and that's just... That's well, just polishing. Yeah, the, that's just kind of the only Asian action film. Yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so I unless I you count Speed Angels as an action film. The, we there's more action from us laughing in the cinema for Speed Angels <laughs> than in the entire movie. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and actually we had some good laugh laughs here in this movie too because of all the all the uh, logic problems. Um, and seriously, if this 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 nerd. These uh, fanboy fanboy praise continues throughout the year. I think it may be the most overrated film of the year. Hmm. Um, so I would just say TV it. East Green, West Green. All right, we have two West Green films to talk about this week. Both older films that have finally made their way to Hong Kong uh, during this holiday period. The first one um, is The Descendants, the latest film starring George Clooney, which is um, primarily, I think, in part come to Hong Kong because of all the buzz that has been generated. It's already won uh, uh, two Golden Globe Awards, and I think it's got five nominations for the upcoming Academy Awards, including uh, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for George Clooney. The Descendants uh, tells the story of Matt King, uh, played by Clooney, who's sort of this um, lawyer who lives in Honolulu, and uh, he is the sole trustee of a huge family estate of Hawaiian land, undeveloped land. Um, and so he's a very rich man, as we learn right, right, from, the, right from the get-go. Um, at the same time, we also learn that his wife, Elizabeth, is in a coma. She's had a boating accident, and um, her health uh, does, does not look good. Uh, they're unsure if she's going to recover. So... Uh, Matt King finds himself uh, having to take care of his two daughters. And so the film sort of centers on his relationship, um, which was failing with his wife, 
and how he sees that now that she's at death's door and coming to grips with his uh, new relationships with his daughters, which was pretty, he was pretty much, much an absentee father uh, before focusing solely on uh, his business affairs. Um, and so that sort of sets the basis. And then as the story progresses, he starts to learn about things, um, both about his daughters and his wife uh, that he, he didn't know before. He sort of comes into terms with having to be on his own uh, as a father and deal with some of the skeletons in his wife's closet that he was not familiar with. Um, so it's sort of an awareness story. It's also a little bit of a I wouldn't call it necessarily a midlife crisis, but more like a post-midlife crisis um, that's going on with, with, uh, with this, this central character, Matt King. Um, his name, too, is, is quite interesting, his surname of King, because they've kind of tied his family into the actual history of Hawaii, which makes it very, very interesting. I was very, very much interested in, in some of that, some of the connections that... Uh, you know, his uh, family line had um, with uh, the, the last king of um, Hawaii and the, why they were so wealthy, why they had all this land. And I really wanted to see, you know, sort of a lot more of that aspect. Um, there are many points in the film when the main central character, uh, Matt King, is doing narration, um, sort of telling his feelings, uh, telling his thoughts, and I think Clooney is very well suited for that. He's got a great voice. He's got a great presence. Even though he's not the, the normal Clooney, he has this ability as an actor to reshape himself for roles. Um, not just emotionally, but physically. I mean, the way that he carries himself. One of the things that stuck in my mind th throughout this film is he runs really weird. You know, there there are a couple scenes where there was one where he's like running around the corner to a friend's house because he's just learned something. He's trying to confirm something. There's another where he's running on the beach to catch up to this guy and he runs like a dork. You know, and I'm thinking, this is the guy that played Batman back in the 90s, right? <laughs> um, so he, he has this way of, you know, bringing a certain physicality to roles. And I, I remembered too, back to um, what was the one he did uh, about the Middle East? Crisis, Syriana. Syriana, yeah. Yeah, and you know the way that he modified his his outlook and, and his presence for that too, and then contrasting that with uh, the film that I really really love that he did a few years ago, Up in the Air. Um, it's really he he is one of my favorite male lead actors out there. Although I can't say I like uh, all of the things that he ends up choosing as roles. Uh, more often than not, I typically do, and I really liked him um, in this film. But I think another title for this film what it should have been rich white people problems <laughs> because I mean, he, he is a very, very wealthy man and this is contrasted only in a few places. Most of the story focuses on him, his relationship with his daughters, his relationship with his comatose wife and them going around together um, throughout different places in Hawaii. So Hawaii as a setting is kind of in focus and I really enjoyed that part of it. The, the plot of him sort of bonding with his daughters um, is, is interesting. It's quirky at points, but sometimes I think it's, it starts to take itself way too seriously. Um, and there are some supporting stories that I was really interested in that sort of get glossed over. There's this very short thing where um, he ends up having to go over to this woman's house because his daughter has been basically cyberbullying this 
you know, schoolmate. And, you know, he's been asked to bring his little daughter over to apologize for the cyberbullying. And everybody knows him because he's so wealthy and he has this land. And this house that he goes over to is, is sort of a native, native Hawaiian um, woman's house. And her daughter is there. And you can just, you know, see the, the difference in lifestyle and living um, between the two. And so because of that, I mean, I really had a hard time feeling for the character in, I mean, in, in some of the situations that he found himself in. I just felt like, yeah, it's a tough thing you're going through, but you've still got billion dollars, you know, that, 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 you're, that you're sitting on. Um, so it's not that tough, is it? Um, and, and maybe that's just me, you know, thinking, I was thinking, you know, make him a 99 percenter and then maybe I'll feel a bit more for the guy. Um, but there's some other aspects too. I mean, Bo Bridges, wow, where did he pop up from, right? It's you know, his brother Jeff's doing well. He's like, oh, I got to get back in the spotlight. And and he's pretty good. I was really interested. He plays one of the cousins. Um, they're, they're like a group of cousins who are all sort of part of this um, uh, collective, um, this collective trust. And they're trying to get George Clooney's character to break up and sell all the land because most of them live well beyond uh, their means and they want the money. Um, still, I, I just really kind of had that, had that hard time because in the back of my mind, what you're seeing this guy do is basically just go around from beach to beach to beach, you know, and, and they start off the movie saying, oh, you know, everybody thinks I live in paradise, but let me tell you, this is hell. Right. And, but no, it's still paradise. <laughs> you know, you're feeling bad on the beach. You're feeling bad at this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, clubhouse. You're feeling bad. Uh, on a plane going to Maui or Kauai or or the big island, right? And I just kind of was thinking all the time in the back of my mind, well, you know, if this was happening to a normal guy, they'd be feeling bad in, you know, their public estate building or <laughs> the back alley, right? Um, and so because of that, I still kind of had a hard time really getting that invested in a lot of the story. It's still a great story. It's still very well acted. I loved Clooney. Um, the girls he got for his daughters were great. This dorky kid they got to play the friend, Sid. I mean, even he was good. Um, again, Bo Bridges, Robert Forrester shows up um, to play um, his wife's father. And he's got, you know, a couple really good moments. Uh, I'd say, you know, if you like Clooney or Hawaii, this is definitely a see it. I mean, it's gonna, it's, a, it's, up, for, it's up for big awards, so a lot of people are going to see it anyway. Um, but those two parts of it really sort of made the film for me. But it's one of those films that I think you see once and you probably don't need to see it again for mm -hmm. quite some time because it's really just about the story. Um, the scenery is nice, but it's not, it's not really, you know, outstanding scenery. It's, it's trying to show Hawaii as real Hawaii, you know, the Hawaii that you don't see on... Hawaii Five O. You're never expecting, you know, Steve McGarrett to pop around the corner and start shooting at people. Um, it's not that exotic Hawaii. This is sort of a real Hawaii that if you go and you you just sort of visit places and you don't go as a tourist, that you get to see. And yes, the scenery is nice. Yes, they have good weather. Sometimes they have bad weather. It's just like any other place. Um, they just have more beaches, and it costs more to live there. Hmm. Um, Kevin, what what was your take? No, I thought I thought the Hawaii in the movie is still pretty, you know 
fake Hawaii. It's still like beach Hawaii, the club, like you said, clubhouse Hawaii. You know, uh, the big, the, when they show the land that they own, you know, it's like crane shot Hawaii. Yeah. yeah, it's still very much. I mean, the whole point about showing, you know, Hawaii through the normal man's I I don't think it works so well here because it's still way too pretty, I think. I'm not sure if Hawaii really is that pretty. Oh, it is. Okay, it is. Okay, yeah. well, okay, then it's the real Hawaii. Okay, um, but but like the scene, the, the the scene I mentioned before, where he like sort of goes to um, the, the the woman's house. If you look at the houses there, they're all like side by side by side by side. You know, they're people like people. Suburbs. Yeah, they people have you know tiny, if you could call them yards at all. You know, and then you contrast that with his sort of, you know, not. I wouldn't say you know we're not talking like. Palm Beach style estates. He it's not he a mansion, but it's I a mean, big in, house. in his part of his character, part of the reason I like his character is because that he has this ethic that he lives within the means that he can earn himself as a lawyer. Right. He doesn't use the trust like his cousins, you know, want to. And I, I think that's you know one of the things that really made me like him. But he's still a one percenter. I mean, he's got this he's huge still place. Hell, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that um, they, they I think they wanted to try and give that 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 sense of a, a more realistic Hawaii. But you're right. They do at a lot of points. They do just focus on beaches and and uh, things like that as well. Yeah. Um, but back to Clooney, you were talking about Clooney. And I think it's very interesting because um, George Clooney usually plays, uh, you know, very has a very charismatic, very confident um, characters, um, if not arrogant characters. Um, and. Like I really like him here because I think that's the most vulnerable character or the, the 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 most insecure character he's played in a very long time, and I think that that makes this his performance naturally likable because he's playing such a flawed man in a way. Even though even though actually within the the world of uh, director Alexander Payne, who did uh, Election um, and and um, Sideways and uh, About Schmidt. Actually, I think the Matt King character is actually his his least flawed character because um, election. You remember, uh, you have Matthew Barrick, who is this lame high school, uh, middle school teacher or high school teacher who's going to cheat on his wife, but then screws it all up and loses everything in the process. Um, or you have um, sideways. You have the 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 failed uh, writer who goes to Napa and then his friend who constantly cheats. Um, and you have these really cynical. And cynical handling of these flawed characters, and here actually Alexander Payne, he kind of trades away the cynicism for uh, a lot more warmth. It's a very warm movie, I think. It's a very heartwarming movie in a way, um, and that's kind of interesting. And of course, like I said, Clooney playing a, a very vulnerable character that's interesting. Um, but like I, I, like I was saying earlier, Hawaii is really that pretty, um, I guess. Um, but back to back to the Clooney character, I think the interaction, the parts with the interactions with his daughters, the the whole part about um, getting learning to get along with his daughters again, because like you said in the narration, um, he's the backup parent. He's not used to being an attentive father. And I think that development, that line is is quite good. And even the stuff, the main decor, which is um, about the Mad King character searching for a person. Uh, because you didn't spoil it, so I shouldn't. Even though I think it's already in the trailer, um, that that is the core journey. But I think him learning to become a parent is actually uh, uh, really the best part of the film. Um, however, uh, I think the humor really goes for the easy laughs. You know, makes fun of uh, the the the, the uh, clueless young guy uh, like Sid. I think he he goes a lot of the easy laughs with Sid. Even though I kind of end up liking Sid near the end. 
Um, except for one scene, uh, there's a confrontation scene kind of near the third act that's uh, supposed to be, you know, packed of tension, and that's a scene that people have been waiting for all movie. But actually, it was very beautifully handled with yeah, just it was, the right dose of humor. It was. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very great scene. I thought that's really the best, um, the best way to balance the humor and the drama. Um, otherwise, I mean, the humor goes with a lot of easy laughs. You know, like Robert Forster's the grumpy grandfather, you know. Yeah, and, and that's really much a lot of easy laughs there. So it's not really as funny as, uh, or as wickedly funny as Alexander Payne's past movies. Um, but the, the overall, the journey is quite enjoyable. Um, I think it's a likable film, and uh, I had a good time watching. Not a, you know, haha, good time, but I enjoyed the fil- the film. But I can't say it's a really great film. It's not um, it's not really a breakthrough for Alexander Payne, and I don't really see why it's an Oscar contender. I mean, I know it won Best Picture in, in the Golden Globes, which I'm confused by. Uh, Clooney for Best Actor, maybe, but I'm not sure why is has been deemed you know good enough to 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 get you know to pick up best picture and i don't think so um and like you were saying uh paul uh, rich white people with the problems you know it's yawn yawn <laughs> sorry i don't i should care more but not really we are the 99 percent really 99 damn it <laughs> um but uh, i think overall it's an enjoyable like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a pleasant film it's i liked it and Clooney is good so i would still say you know like you said it, it is a awards contender so you're gonna see it anyway so you know I recommend it. It's a good movie to see. Yeah. I, I really like the way they ended it, too. Mm. You know, I think it, it ended on a pleasant, uh, a very a very pleasant uh, shot, I would say. I it, it, brought, it brought the... You mean you're talking about the very final scene, right? Yes. It brought the focus back to where it should be. Instead yeah. of, you know, that whole thing with the, the land and whatnot. whatnot. Yeah. And I think if you're looking for more 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 details about the, the land, I think well, it's, it's based on a novel. Yeah. And yeah. I, I would expect that the novel with a lot yeah. more exposition about that, yeah. Let us move on and talk about our second West Screen film for the week. And that is Puss in Boots. Uh, this coming from director Chris Miller, um, who um, really hasn't worked on a whole lot of other stuff in terms of his filmography. Um, Shrek the Third, right? That's about it. Uh, going from Shrek the Third to Puss in Boots. Now, oh, there's a fourth movie. What's that? That was a fourth movie, right? Shrek the Third. Shrek, Shrek uh, Forever After. No, but he didn't work on that apparently. I thought he was. I thought his character was in it. No, no, no. I'm. I'm I mean, the director, Chris. Oh, Miller. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. catch that. No, yes. no. Um, no, yeah. The the Puss in Boots character came along in the second film, and, and yes. he was in the third and the fourth film. Um, but the director, Chris Miller, in terms of his own filmography, has only uh, Shrek the Third uh, as a notch in his belt. Um, so he's gone from that to this, and what a movement. Uh, what what can we say if you? Don't aren't familiar with uh, the character of Puss in Boots. Of course, it's based on you know children's fairy tale, but it was reimagined for the Shrek films as sort of a Zorro-esque swashbuckling kitty, um, sometimes mercenary, sometimes assassin for hire, uh, all times troublemaker uh, for the most part. Who's been in all of these successive Shrek films in one form or another, and now he's branched off to his own film, which is actually a prequel. Uh, to the Shrek films. It's sort of an origin story, and it tells of his origin, and it tells of 
his friendship with uh, his best friend, both orphans, um, in an orphanage, Mr. Humpty Dumpty, who's voiced by Zach Galifianakis, who I could not for the life of me identify in the film. The whole film, I'm saying, I know that voice, I know that voice, and I thought it was somebody else. And then at the end, said Zach Galifianakis, I was like, are you kidding me? Um, But he does an excellent job as well. And also along for the ride is is a uh, contemporary of Antonio Banderas. They've worked together before. Miss Salma Hayek as... um, the character, what was her name? Uh, Kitty Softpaws? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so all three turn in excellent performances. The story basically tells of the pursuit of magic beans, uh, which is Humpty's lifelong dream, and he sort of passes this dream on to Puss. And to get these magic beans, to climb up the beanstalk to the castle, to get the uh, golden goose that lays golden eggs. Um, and this sort of serves as the driving obsession for Humpty Dumpty, um, but he's never able to, able to quite achieve the success, and over time he comes to blame his friend uh, Puss for it, and it causes them to have a separation in their relationship at some point, uh, until much later when they are brought back together and they have to reconcile and once again go in pursuit of the magic beans and the golden goose. Um what can we say about the film? Well, it's a cat in a hat or boots with a sword, so that's cool. Um, this is the best thing to come out of Shrek since Shrek, at least the first <laughs> Shrek in my book. Um, it's got some really excellent music, and I got to say thank you to iTunes for having the music there. Um, I went out and watched the movie. I love the music so much. I went home and bought it. And here's a little bit. Makes you just feel like you're in a Zorro movie right away, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, really good, really excellent soundtrack, really good stuff. Uh, great voice acting, as you'd expect. The plot, kind of predictable. I mean, you've seen these kind of uh, buddy plots where, you know, you have buddies at first, buddies break up, buddies get back together. Um, you know, what's what's going on behind the scenes um, where there's a woman involved. So is it going to become a little bit of a love triangle or not? Um <clears throat> but then it really diverges away from the the true legend or the the literary nursery rhyme or or children's story of Puss in Boots, at least as as I knew it, um, to sort of fit with the character as he was uh, created for Shrek. So you have much more of a Zorro like tale here, and it really works. Um, the the there's a lot of action. Um, there's also a lot of humor. The humor's you know in that tone of Shrek where it's directed at. Things you know, uh, things you're supposed to recognize for the most part, but uh, it's altered ever so slightly to make it funny and entertaining. Uh, the villains here are Jack and Jill, who went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, and they're like behemoth ogres. And it's really sort of funny the, the way that the two of them interact. They're not what you would expect um, if I said that there's going to be Jack and Jill in, a, you know, in an animated film. And what can we say? More, please. Uh, I want a sequel. I, I, I like the character. I think a lot of people like the character. And the quality of the writing here, the quality of the performances, uh, makes me want more. My fear, though, is that it will follow the same path of Shrek. And they'll milk it and milk it and milk it and produce the heck out of it um, until it kills it. And I don't want to see them do that. But for now, Puss in Boots is definitely a see-it-in-my-book. Um, and I saw it in 3D. 
was didn't really have a choice, but you know, I, I kind of got into it. Kevin, really? Yeah. Got into I I was okay with the 3D. Not not. It wasn't. Not I mean, it it wasn't great 3D in terms of you know the the any 3D. I've never I've never had anything except Avatar really kind of knock my socks off. Um, True, but yes. you know, I wasn't. You know, typically with animation, I'm a lot more forgiving than with you know stuff like Clash of the Titans. So, oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I think animation pulls off just by nature of the the, the actual format itself. I think it is probably better 3D than 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 uh, live action films. But um, yeah, it was okay. Uh, anyway, I I was never a really big fan of Shrek series. Um, I've seen most of the films. I'm not. I don't remember if I saw the third one, but I definitely, I've definitely seen one. Two, I haven't. Four. I haven't seen the fourth one. That's the uh, one where he the, changes the timeline and everything. Yeah, I don't remember that one anymore. I just remember it being not very good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's. I like the Puss in Boots character from the, but essentially he is a one joke character. I mean, yes, Zoro is a cat, and that's pretty much it. And I think the joke continues here. Uh. You don't really see much more about Puss in Boots that you don't even you don't already know. Uh, Antonio Banderas, is, he I think he's interesting because essentially he plays the character like he's not in on a joke, but he is. You know what I mean? Yeah. He plays it straight, but he knows that it's a joke, but he plays it straight, and I think that's the best part of him. And I think the humor is really the best thing about the film because right right now, once in a while, I'm go I'm, once in a while after watching the film, once in a while I go ooh. <laughs> Ooh. You see, you get it if you watch the film, but ooh, but yeah, that's that's really best. I thought that was the best joke, the best recurring joke of the of the film. Um, but other than that, it's really just more of the same. I think you were talking about Jack and Jill. Uh, it's really just more of the whole um, a twisted take on on fairy tale kind of thing. Um, turning Jack and Jill into like what psychopath killers. Um, yeah, that's not really fresh. Uh, it's really just really more of the same. Um, the thing is. My main problem is that the story of the film is really just more like uh, an episode in the Puss in Boots uh, series, TV series. Because hmm. this movie is supposed to be uh, directed DVD, I think, for at one point. It was supposed to be directed DVD and then they decided on a theatrical release. Um, but I think I was, I was pro- we were promised a prequel because it's supposed to be about the legend of Puss in Boots. But you don't really know much more about the character here. It's really just another adventure that happens to have Puss in Boots as the hero. And... Um, it doesn't really add anything for anyone who's not a fan of the series, I think. If you like the Puss in Boots character, you like what the Shrek series does, I think the film is going to be fine. It's very enjoyable. It's funny. Um, but it doesn't really add anything. And I don't think the material is getting any more fresh. Um, I'm not sure what the series needs, but I think it does need a series reboot if it wants to continue. Um, otherwise, it really is getting more and more stale. I, I, you know, they hold... The whole you know twist twisting fairy tales thing and the meta humor is really not that fresh anymore. Once you have five five movies in, and I'm not sure what they need to do, but this one doesn't really help that uh, the declining of the series. I think, hmm. um, but you know I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, it is fun while it lasted, and um, I guess you know TV it, and at least you can watch it in 2D. So yeah, I would say TV it. <laughs> the East is blue. Wait, what? All right, so we have a video pick this week, and the pick is the Blu-ray of East Meets West. Now we reviewed this film here on the show 
a um, couple episodes back in November when it was first released theatrically. And it got a very quick to Blu-ray uh, release uh, right before the Chinese New Year. And, uh, well, what can we say about the film? Um, the film is, as we talked about in the, in the review, um, basically sort of an origin story for a group of superheroes, a group of really kind of odd superheroes. I, I would say that to find a film that was comparable in Western terms, you'd probably want to look at uh, the Ben Stiller movie. I think it was Mystery Men. Mystery Men? Nah, nah. I would say The Avengers. The Avengers? I, yeah. No, it's, because... It's really Eastern take of the... I know, it's, I know it's not that... It's not an established franchise like it is, but Yeah, I but think this is such... It, yeah, like, this is tongue-in-cheek, so I think it's but, a, it's it's yeah, more in line with Man. Mystery Men. The thing is, the Mystery Men... The, the Mystery Men don't have any superpowers, so you can't... I think this one. Well, they do. I mean, Mister Furious gets furious, and uh, <laughs> the Invisible Boy, you know, uh, is invisible when nobody's looking at him. Um, <laughs> but here, you know, it's it's got that level of weirdness that I think somebody coming to it fresh would be thinking, "What the heck am I watching?" Um, but if you stick through it, it, I think it's one of the more entertaining films to come out of uh, 2011. And the Blu-ray itself, though, Region A Blu-ray, so that means for all you folks in the U.S., you'll have no problems playing it on your player. If you're in Europe, though, uh, like our friends over there, you're going to have to probably get some kind of a multi-region player. Um, this is, the, the disc itself is the uh, uh, coming from Cam and Robinson. The, this is the distribution. Ronson, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, and in terms of special features, though, this is where... Um, I was kind of disappointed with the disc. Uh, it's really lacking, and I guess that's because they kind of rushed it out a few months after release. Uh, you've basically only got three trailers, uh, two of which are very short, under a minute. One is the more lengthy extended trailer, which you can find on YouTube. Um, and you've got one thing that's called a making of. It's about four minutes long, and it's more like an art video, because basically all it is is footage of each character, starting with uh, the Eason Chan, and then Karen Mock, and Eakin uh, Chang, and Kenny B. And it's basically almost like a, a clip shot of them in different costumes. There's no dialogue. There's nobody talking about, you know, the film. There's no interview with the director, his thoughts on why he was doing, no interviews with the writers or anything. So why they can call it a making of, um, it just baffles me. Uh so I was really disappointed in the the lack of special features because this is a movie where you really want to have some commentary <clears throat> or some insight from <clears throat> excuse me some insight from the creators you know um, talking about their thoughts and some of the ideas and creativity that was going into the film or explaining some of the things that just make you kind of scratch your head at certain points you know like why are we bringing Kenny B back right. Um, <clears throat> In <clears throat> excuse me, ah, I need some water. In terms of the uh, DVD itself, the quality is pretty outstanding. I'll say, um, starting with the menu screen, the menu screen looks beautiful in full HD, um, it, it, and it lists it as uh, 1080p, and it looks, it just looks amazing. And then the movie itself looks really, really good. The colors are sharp, um, the images were very, very clear, and uh, I wish that more Hong Kong Blu-rays came out, you know, at this level of quality. And maybe it's because this is a, you know, 
a very recent film, and they're starting to look at transfers for Blu-ray a little bit more seriously. Um, but again, sadly, the lack of features might make this, with the price point, a little bit too expensive um, for some people. Um, you know, again, it's something that I was looking forward to seeing. I wanted to see the quality in the Blu-ray, but I was really hoping for more special features on there. Kevin, you got a copy. What yes. are your thoughts on it? Oh, man, I I popped the copy in um, and I put on my headphones just to to check out the film and the opening. The opening of the film is the credit sequence. They have the, they have the old, um, what's, what song is that? What movie is that song from? Um, you recognize the song, right? The opening yeah, song. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's one of the classic '80s song. I think um, it's from an older movie. But the way the, 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 it has a rock cover and the way that you know it's it's banging on on the headphone in the opening sequence. I mean, that itself should get you excited about that movie. And it was yeah, it, the movie looks great and it sounds great. And uh, this this actually quickly in retrospect is quickly climbing to be one of my favorite films of the uh, one of my favorite Hong Kong films of the year. Um, so yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I think we talked about the film before and that and we we agreed that it's kind of acquired taste. Um, I know that people in China hated this movie. Uh, it's voted as one of the worst movies of the year from by by people in China because a lot of them and I can see why because you know Jeff Lau's brand of humor isn't for everyone and. If, if you can accept a certain incoherence in your humor or a certain nonsensical element in the humor, and I think yeah. this is a fantastic comment. Even a, a couple of English reviews I've read online, I think there was a site in Malaysia or Singapore uh, that I was reading, and there was an English review on it, and just lambasting it, really. They started off by saying, you know, if you look at the uh, original Eagle Shooting Heroes, it's considered a classic, and... Uh, very funny and, and uh, you know, a lot of humor inside, and this doesn't hold a candle to it. I can't really agree. I think that there's quite a lot here. Quite a lot of it is an in-joke, though. But I think some of it, even for people on the outside, um, is interesting and entertaining enough to, you know, keep people interested yeah, to see I, it through to the end. I think it is an immensely entertaining comedy. I, and I think, again, it does come with conditions. Is that you do have to... Except a certain because I mean Jeff Lau he is he has he uses a lot of dumb humor that is true and I and I and it's true that not all the humor hits here a lot of, there are a lot of misses of the humor but he's actually a very clever he's actually the smartest the smartest dumb movies director in Hong Kong right now and I and I wrote this in my editor's pick for yesterday today um this he this is really the the smartest dumb movie of the year because if you rewatch it and there's something that goes Bob and I realized again when you watch it again. Is that actually from the beginning, Jeff Lau is laying pieces of the puzzle. From he's foreshadowing what happens in the movie, mm, yeah. right from the beginning, and he's laying these out, these things out very carefully along along the way. And even the the romance, I think, is quite poignant. Um, and and there's some really great techniques. I mean, there's a, a sort of recurring technique that he uses about about you know um, with the turning the back of the head. That's kind of recurring technique in the romance section, and I thought that was brilliant, uh, brilliant idea. Um, there are many things to admire about this film, but it's really a matter of whether you're willing to, to, uh, to, to drop certain, certain you know comparisons, you know, like comparing to Eagle Shooting Heroes or uh, uh, accepting nonsensical humor to really enjoy the film. And I think now that it's on Blu-ray, it really deserves a chance, a second chance. If you watch it again, you may enjoy it more. Yeah. 
a couple other final things to point out. Uh, does have two audio tracks, a Cantonese and a Mandarin track. Um, and I think you were commenting on the Mandarin track before, right? Yeah, the Mandarin track actually is it's a track made for China. Um, the Cantonese is a lot of Cantonese jokes, which is great because you know it's nice to see a China-made comedy that is so so has such a great Cantonese dub. Uh, a lot of the actors dub themselves. But the Mandarin track, you have uh, Kenny B. Kenny B speaks his own Mandarin. He's the only actor in the entire film, I think, that speaks his own Mandarin. Even the Taiwanese actors are dubbed. Um, even Jonathan Lee, the the, the uh, Taiwanese musician, even he's dubbed by a different. Even actor. even what's her name from um, Road Less Traveled? Uh, actually, no. Actually, no. I think Huan Yi, yeah, spoke her own voice. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, the Huan Yi's um, the flashback. Huan Yi spoke Shanghai, Shanghainese mm. for no apparent reason. Uh, <laughs> the, the the cab driver character speaks a, a local dialect. Um, there was a, a reference to the. Um, the, the high speed rail collusion um, uh, aftermath uh, the the you know the quote that the the rail the rail ministry spokesman used is somehow it gets thrown the reference to that thrown in got thrown into the film I thought the Mandarin track was was funny and certainly a lot more effort was put into it than I expected so if I have time I might watch the entire film with mm-hmm. the Mandarin soundtrack um, mm-hmm. but yeah actually yeah it's worth if you understand the both languages um, it, it's worth taking a look to just to check out the, the differences. Another thing to point out, um, a little bit of a negative, is that the uh, back sleeve of the Blu-ray doesn't have an English synopsis. Maybe they figured this just wasn't going to, you know, sell in the West because of its nature. Um, But surprising, because almost all the Blu-rays that I've gotten to date for local films have had some small, you know, a paragraph of an English synopsis, English blurb on the back. This one does not. The thing is, if you look at the bottom, it looks like the the whole credit list takes up half the bottom. I mean, most of that layout. Yeah. So I'm I wouldn't be surprised if it just simply didn't have room hmm. to fit one in. And you're right. Let me check. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're right. Most of these movies do have an English, English. Even even you know, TVB movie Blu-rays have English synopsis. Yeah. You're right. But yeah, I, I think it's a matter of maybe the Chinese one was too long or they couldn't fit in the layout. Um. But yeah, it is um kind of strange. You're right. Well, there you have it, our video pick of the week. Worth your time uh, and your money. If you are a Blu-ray lover, check out East Meets West 2011. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, folks, I think that's going to do it. If you'd like to be part of the show, you can always find us over on iTunes. Uh, Stop by there. Leave us a review. Leave us some comments, and we will read those comments right here on the show. You can follow us at Twitter. Uh, The show Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash concast. You can also follow Mr. Ma at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock or myself at twitter.com slash foxlore. If you'd like to email the show, you can hit us up at eastscreen at gmail.com and if you're so inclined you know send us an audio file with a question or a comment a short review and we might just play it here on the show um try and keep it brief in an mp3 format that'll help us out immensely and as always you can stop by the website at concast.com and you can join in the discussion there 
on anything that we are talking about. And if the interesting conversation gets uh, stirred up, sometimes we'll talk about what people have to say. Um, I'd like to say, of course, a big thanks to um, all the people who helped this uh, show get going. People like Rob Gobers, who did our theme from Schnauzer Studios, Ross Chen of Love Hong Kong Film, lovehkfilm.com for keeping us out and about and watching movies. Of course, the K-Man for sticking with me through each and every week. And of course, all of you, the listeners, who make doing this show worth doing. You know, if we didn't have listeners, what would we have? We'd be a tree falling in the woods with no one around to hear it, right? We'll be, uh, we'll be people screaming in a dynasty. Yeah, we'd be a one-armed man trying to clap. Something like that. You can just hit his stomach. Yeah. You know, say. As opposed like to that. a two-armed man with the clap. You don't want that. That's bad. Um, oh, 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 <laughs> of course, uh, if you are iTunes phobic, you can always catch us on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your WebOS phones. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com because Stitcher smart radio is the smarter way to listen to radio. And we thank them for their support of our little show. What what's going on, Mr. Ma? You got anything else you want to pump or plug or talk about that's coming up this week? Yeah, um my week is very busy actually. I, I will be because we have so many movies here opening in Hong Kong, I will be writing three reviews this week for um YP movies. I will be writing about Eats of March or the Eats of March, the George Clooney film. Uh what else am I doing? Uh, War Horse, the Steven Spielberg film, and also uh, Haywire, the new Steven Soderbergh movie. Mm. Those reviews will be on um, this by this weekend on www.ypmovies.com.hk. Click on the English page and you will find my reviews. Mm, yeah. All right, that sounds um, good. Yeah, and also this weekend I might work on the blog again. Who knows? Sometime. What? Maybe. Is hell freezing over? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really did have a couple of ideas in mind, but you know, once it's just been attacked. Ides, <clears throat> Ides of March. Why are we getting that? Uh, this I mean, weekend. no, I I know when, but it's been out. It's already out on iTunes for rent. Yes. Are we just right. getting it because Clooney's an Oscar contender? It, we are getting it because I think the um the the distributor is um kind of slotting putting it in a slot that's near the the Hong Kong. Uh, chief executive elections. Oh. It's about time for the nominations, the official nominations. Yeah. I mean, I've been looking forward to seeing it, and I was kind of debating: should I go ahead and rent it on iTunes or wait and watch it in the cinema? Because I'm, you know, I love political theater, and yeah. but I don't know: is it going to be anywhere near as entertaining as these Republican primaries? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you like political films, I think you enjoy it a lot. Even if it's not a perfect film, I think it it is um it is very much part of a much much better and longer film but what what we have here is quite good hmm. i think it's worth watching if you like political film so um yeah you should support it i had to see on itunes for you know my own work reasons but you should yeah you should definitely watch it all right so we'll probably be talking about that uh, in our next episode that'll be episode 98 um we'll also be hopefully looking at finally uh the flowers of war uh, as well as what anything else coming out between now and then tons of movie uh, i mean yeah we what have think, what, um, do, what do you think we'll talk about this weekend, we still have Soderbergh's Haywire. We have, uh, like I said, uh, Spielberg's War Horse. We have um, Chronicle. Oh, Chronicle, yeah. yeah that looks kind of interesting. Uh, the mockumentary so, sci-fi film. We'll have, to, we'll have to figure out what we're going to talk about. But I think Flowers of War will definitely be in there for East Screen. And uh, Ides of March for West Screen. And maybe one other film uh, in that slot. And, of course, we'll hopefully have a 
another uh, video pick of the week next week as well. All of that and much more on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing, and we will see you all next week. See you all next week, everybody. Sweet way.